Every day, amazing humans are connecting with their power as individuals to change the lives of others, to create opportunities, to fight injustice, to care for the planet. It's my mission to raise these amazing humans up and in harnessing the power of their stories, bring energy, passion, inspiration to your day, to connect you with your unique abilities to impact the world. Every time you click play on this show, you will be inspired, empowered, and reminded that with every decision, you have the ability to touch lives and leave a positive legacy. Thank you for joining us as we share stories from across the world. Thank you for believing that you can make a difference. This is Impact Stories with Nick Kershaw. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Impact Stories with me, Nick Kershaw. It is an immense pleasure and privilege to launch a show with one clear goal, to empower listeners to change the world. Throughout the series, we will be crisscrossing the globe in search of the incredible humans who are lifting their communities, their organisations and the world. More importantly, we'll be crossing from the charity sector to business to politics, social entrepreneurs and everything in between. If we want to create true, lasting change, this is not a solitary act. We need to harness all sectors, all skill sets, all abilities in order to achieve that. With that in mind, my first guest has united the power of finance, sustainability organisations and content creation throughout his career. Michael Radomir has advised policymakers and corporates. He chairs the SEM Charitable Trust, making grants across the US and the UK to those battling climate change. And, which is how we met, he is the executive director of Code Red, Stand for Trees, a methodology endorsed by COP21 in not only preventing further climate change, but reversing it. Now, this is a wide-ranging discussion, and I think underpinning all of it is an optimism, and an optimism that is sorely lacking often in the conversations we have around climate change. We'll learn more about how Code Red Plus works and how to create viral videos, which is something that Michael has done throughout his career. And we'll look at his optimism, his concerns, uh, and what needs to happen for the COP26 negotiations, which is the summit that's going to happen this November in Glasgow to further and set the goals and the standards for the years to come in terms of climate change globally. So the COP26, uh, Michael basically will t- talk us through what we need to see, what are the key metrics that we're looking for. And it's a super interesting conversation. And as I said, underpinned by Uh, an overwhelming positivity and belief that we as humanity can overcome this before we dive in with michael i just wanted to let you know that when we recorded this it was early december so some of the stuff at the beginning about life in washington uh isn't entirely up to date um just bear in mind that it was recorded before the events of early january Michael Radomir here uh today joining us from are you still in washington at the moment is that where you're based Yes, been here in two years and stuck here for the moment. It's uh, snowy, but uh, no riots, uh, even though Donald Trump hasn't left the White House. And uh, uh, yeah, here in Washington. Well, an interesting, yeah, an interesting time to be living, uh, living there through this period. What's what's the last couple of months been like? Well, there have been flashpoints in 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 and around the White House. You know, it's been a sort of charged atmosphere here in America, really, since Donald Trump became president. 
But, you know, we had the Black Lives Matter movement uh, really come through with George Floyd's death, you know, about a year ago. Uh, and there's been regular protests and obviously the contested election or the falsely contested election uh, and, and Donald Trump's sorts of very strange antics have not helped. But And there have been some clashes and some even some stabbings between anti fascist protesters and kind of fascist protesters. Um, so that's been a little disturbing, but it's been very contained. It's it's localized around the sort of government buildings downtown. And overall, it's been pretty good. Uh, it's not, you know, the, the, the media, I think, especially the, the visual news, you, you see the worst of it. But living here, the mayor's done a great job and, and the city's in good shape. And as, as, a, as a British person yeah. living there, how much do you... Uh, in, engage in that conversation, the political conversations. Is it something that you feel comfortable being, you know, getting involved in those conversations? Do you feel a bit more? I, I have. I like to keep track of it. Um, as you say, you know, I'm British. Uh, I may become an American citizen one day. Um, it's important to the, the, the work I do in the environment to keep on top of politics because it has a especially international forest protection, uh, which which we work on. Um, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats are slightly different in how they approach that. But uh, and I'm personally very interested in American politics. So and I'm passionate about America. So I do get involved. But you, you do have to be sensitive. And even though I've been coming to America for many years and I've done business here and I've got family here, you have to learn about the country. Uh, and it isn't it's easy to judge, you know, if you are brought up here in America um, obviously, so so I am careful what to say, and, and I'm still learning. But but I do get involved in the conversation. Absolutely, I mean, and I think that, that we segues nicely into starting off uh, the conversation around uh, your work. And um, obviously, we've we've worked together because of the relationship between Impact Marathon and Stanford Trees. But Stanford Trees isn't the only uh, thing that you do personally either in terms of uh, in terms of climate politics. Um, but yeah, if you could just give a, I guess a quick overview of the work of Stanford Trees um, and a, and a bit about how you ended up. Uh, ended up in that line of work and in that field? So Stanford Trees is the public-facing program of Code Red. Code Red is a U.S. nonprofit set up by some of the early pioneers uh, of Red Plus. And I'm just going to step back a second, you know, explain what Red Plus is, because that is what uh, Code Red and Stanford Trees we exclusively are focused on. It's this one environmental policy called Red Plus, which stands for reduced emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. And it's a UN framework that was internationally negotiated over many, many years and formally adopted as uh, in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the UN body where the Paris Agreement sits, um, to protect forests. And it really was something that was added in this transition from the old international framework on climate change called the Kyoto Protocol to the new framework, which eventually was the Paris Agreement. And what Red Plus recognizes is that deforestation is a key part of the climate challenge. And that if we are going to solve climate change, we have to solve deforestation because deforestation accounts for 12% of all global emissions at the moment. That's more than all cars and trucks globally, to put it in perspective. And 
why it hasn't been, well, not that it wasn't so much recognized previously, or, uh, although it is more and more important, is that it's been very hard to regulate because forests are not like power stations. They're not like the transport sector and cars where you can just implement standards and it's, and it's technical. You know, we're dealing with huge landscapes. You know, whole countries is, is how this framework works for going from the smallest of projects, project scale Red Plus, which will be 20, 25,000 acres or 10,000 hectares. That's the really smaller scale going up to the whole nation scale for the largest of countries like Brazil. So you're dealing with enormous landscapes, as they say, full, full country scale at some point, millions, if not hundreds of millions of people across the landscape. And you've got to try and fit everyone in. And there's a huge amount of monitoring uh, and, and all sorts of complicated rules that, that were over time thought through. And, and what it boils down to is understanding how many emissions were happening from deforestation and rewarding those communities and those countries for reducing it. Because deforestation, unfortunately, is, is an issue of economics, and it mainly happens in developing world and the tropics and tropical countries. 95% of net deforestation in the, in the developing tropical forest countries. And it's poor people, uh, developing countries, who are just looking to make a living. So they'll cut down the forest or they'll burn the forest for agriculture, sometimes for, for mining uh, at the small scale or the large scale, or, or for local sustenance, firewood, goat grazing, whatever it may be. But in, in, they need to be able to make a living by protecting the forest. So the world got together through the UN and developed this framework whereby we strictly can measure how many tons of carbon dioxide are being reduced by reducing that deforestation, and we reward those communities and those countries based on how many tons of carbon dioxide are reduced. So at Code Red and Stanford Trees, we do two things. Um, at Stanford Trees, we explain the Red Plus framework under the e an e-commerce platform where we explain how it works. Um, perhaps that's the wrong thing to say. Let me, let me, let me rephrase that. At Stanford Trees, we engage the public about this issue by explaining the background, um, make, giving bite-sized information, and allowing the public to support this process for as little as $6 for a half-ton certificate. And they can choose a project. They can learn how different projects work. They can use their credit card and PayPal, Facebook, all sorts of easy, uh, public-friendly things to engage in this rather high-level process, which normally involves having a special carbon trading account, having a special type of contract known as Emissions Reduction Purchase Agreement. So we are liberalizing this to the world, to the general public, so they can help be part of this solution. Um, you know, as a website, uh, we try and make it cool and social media and all sorts of content that really helps people understand and engage with the platform. And the other thing we do at Code Red is more the technical side under um, special policy reports, um, market reviews, certain conversations with businesses. So we're doing the policy work at Code Red and we're engaging with the public through Stanford Trees. 
And then the the projects themselves, do they fall under the work of Code Red or are they independent projects that Code Red identifies as ones that fit within uh, their, their policy goals? They are all independent. They are members with us. So each project um, decides to join Code Red and be part of the Stanford Trees platform. And we do those two things for them. We assist them with policies. So as part of a group, they've got a stronger voice when we're having policy discussions with policymakers, but they also come together um, to make these small engagements with the public, each and individually, but with a, with a larger picture there that the public can see, a sort of global effort. And they are individual projects. They do have to meet certain criteria from our side to become a member. They have to be verified under a standard for Red Plus that we really respect called the VCS standard, the Voluntary Carbon Standard. And they actually have to have a second standard as well for climate, community, and biodiversity, the CCB standard to a gold level. So that shows us that they have really done everything that's best practice uh, in these type of projects. And so, and, and if you go on the, the Stanford Trees website, there's this, you know, an incredible array of projects from all over the world. Um, do you uh, do you feel like there's a limit to the amount of projects you want to be supporting? Is there a, a cap on that so that it doesn't get too confusing to people when they visit the website trying to decide because all of them seem to me i'm like oh i love this one i particularly obviously engage with the ones near impact projects but how do you uh, limit that that so that it doesn't become you know so uh, intimidating sometimes with the amount of projects available i think actually it's it's the other way around you know as the interest grows we add more to the platform while it's perhaps less understood, like you say, there's less support, uh, although we're, we're doing very well and support is growing, we will limit the amount maybe to 20 projects. But as we really scale the buy-in to this program, we will you know, open the, the platform to as many projects as we can. And actually, probably the way that'll work uh, is not to do projects anymore, but to actually partner with whole jurisdictions and, and governments to help them promote the program of Ecuador or the program of Kenya or the program of one province, one state in Brazil. Uh, so that's how we'll scale up. And do you find uh, are, are those kind of conversations that governments, so Kenya, for example, uh, is really open to that as a conversation to be had? Is that is that something that that's on their agenda to kind of be a representing of the projects going on across the country? So, as I mentioned, you know, this is an economic framework at the end of the day. And deforestation is is an economic issue. And as long as we are helping generate the rewards for the important work they are doing by not cutting down the forest, and that money is helping the local communities and in those countries, develop in a different way, invest in better types of agriculture, ecotourism, whatever the the strategy may be. And we're helping that process and it's of value to these governments. They will be engaged and, and, and involved. But, you know, it is down to how much money we can bring in for them. 
And so, I mean, I've I've got the the Kenya project up here and uh, taking place in Savo East, Savo West, uh, incredibly beautiful parts of the world and some of the sort of uh yeah if you're doing safari in kenya then then i think a lot of people get drawn to the maasai but but sava is absolutely stunning and but when i I look at it here we go we've got the global goals um you know one two three four five six there's so much to it and i think this is you know i guess what you were saying in that first question about that interrelatedness between conservation and people and that's no clearer on your website than when you see the amount of the amount of the global goals connected. Can you talk through th- that project uh, around how how it is working and how you're measuring that impact and how you're connecting that with the the sustainable development goals? So, just to go into the basics of the project, um, the project. And the area was very degraded. It, the the sort of it's it's dryland forest. These aren't tropical rainforests. You you know you know Kenya, uh, and it, it is a very important ecosystem. And it's got this spectacular wildlife. Uh, and 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 really, the area was very degraded historically from oh too much ranching cattle of goats things like that firewood uh, unsustainable use of firewood and and actually that was putting pressure back on the communities right they were getting less returns over time from their cattle ranching uh, you know the, the the ability to collect firewood to grow crops and there was a partnership between uh, a successful american entrepreneur actually this was our founding project and and, and is a project that's been built by the president and founder of our organization, as it happens, this particular project. And he was a successful tech entrepreneur. He bought a conservancy in the region. And he'd always realized that you said that if we was going to protect the elephants uh, and the other wildlife he was he was working to conserve, locals needed a, a financial opportunities. And that, that was driving the, the hunting as well, uh, the poaching. So he started a, a garment factory and was trying to start a sort of wildlife brand and train local people and give them jobs um, so, so they weren't so dependent on sort of cattle ranching and, and such, such subsistence agriculture and firewood and things like that. And they've invested in certain charcoal production. But then they realized that, you know, they needed to go that step further and they needed to really regenerate the whole ecosystem and get the buy-in of a, of a much wider range of people. So they started partnering with, with local communities and you know, communities in this part of the world are, are structured differently than in the West. There's communal land, uh, there's communal land management, there's tribal uh, uh, law in some ways. So each and every tribe and, and village was, was consulted and they made a sort of association between, I think it was about 30 or 40 different villages and the land they owned to join with this conservancy to, to create um, a sustainable development plan, which did all sorts of things from dealing with the, the, the forests in the landscape and the wildlife in the landscape to education opportunities, to um, tourism development, and, and created a much bigger vision. 
And that is financed as well by this red plus carbon finance. And as the forest grew back and as the forest was less and less degraded, that carbon finance brought all this together and, and, and is helping generate these new types of jobs. They've had a huge amount of, of regrowth in the forest. They've had a huge amount of elephants come back into the region. I mean, they're almost, it's unbelievable. They've gone from one or two elephants to 800 in something like 15 years. So, uh, and, and, and you know, the landscape is now very green. Uh, and people are, you know, starting to see the benefits through, uh, through you know, water and, and, and special plant nurseries and education that's being invested in. So it, it's a very large project with a lot of different pieces, but it's brought together, you know, and it's because you referenced it, you know, touches many different sustainable development goals. But it, that's how this, these type of projects work. They are quite large scale, but they come really down to the measurements are based through carbon. And the finance is delivered through carbon. But underneath that, there's all sorts of activities going on, um, which, which help in the end improve the, the forest in the landscape. And so when you say the finance is delivered through through carbon, is that through offset programs and, and these types of mechanisms? That's correct. Um, offsets, you know, you, I want to sort of maybe go into the detail a bit of, of, of what types of carbon finance there are. Offsets really only refers to businesses internationally which have a legal obligation under their domestic laws or through international agreements such as in the aviation sector to reduce their emissions. And when they can't do it themselves, they, they have the options either to pay a penalty or to buy credits from certain types of approved projects like these ones. Um, that is an offset, and that is a part. It's really broken down into, um, I would say, about a third, a third, a third, which is offsets from business, legally obliged to do that, then another third from businesses who actually aren't legally obliged to do it. And it's not really an offset, therefore, because they're not part of the Paris Agreement or they're not part of the country's legislation, but they, they want to take that action. So it's not legally an offset, it's that they term it as an offset. And it's the same for the public. You know, no one, none of us are obliged to offset our footprint. So it's not really an offset in the legal terms, but you can call it an offset, or you can just say that people are doing their piece to provide finance to this important framework, which is helping the world reduce its emission, that you know people are contributing to the climate finance, which are having these impacts. And then there's a third piece, which is overseas development aid. Traditional aid programs are very interested in this because it is generating these multiple benefits and these development benefits while also meeting international climate targets that richer countries and poorer countries have signed up to through the Paris Agreement and which richer countries have promised to provide finance to help those poorer countries deliver. And so when I mean, we've just gone through this process with 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 you in terms of we did a full review impact marathon of the different offset programs that are out there. And one thing that um, it just me. I came across some some fairly negative uh, reviews of of offset programs. I also came across wildly different um, costs involved in how much it costs to offset one ton or how many tons we're actually emitting. What can you talk to the 
why there's such a, a wide range uh, and where people need to start when looking at it. Because as someone who is genuinely interested in it, I found it a fairly intimidating place with lots of opinions. And it felt quite hard to know where to start in terms of how to do that in the most effective way possible. Um, yeah, I, I, it definitely, I, I mean, was grateful to have your support in that process. But we were looking everywhere and we were finding sort of very different conversations going on in all areas of the of the industry. Well, you're, you know, you're not alone and, and don't feel bad about that. It is a very, very daunting landscape in some ways because it's just so wide. You know, the, the carbon is kind of like software. You know, when it came in 20, 30 years ago, it's touched every single industry. And, and climate change and carbon is the same. You know, we're talking about carbon that can be derived from energy production and, and carbon units and carbon offsets as well, uh, from industrial gases, from landfill, from improved agriculture, from, from light bulbs being changed, through boilers being changed, through, um, you know, projects like ours, reducing deforestation. So there's this huge range of different types of carbon uh, and now we're even starting to see carbon technologies, direct air capture, people being able to pull carbon out of the out of the air through chemical and industrial processes, uh, or even sequester it. You know, puts uh, carbon capture and storage where there's uh, over the the emission stacks. Uh, they're 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 diverting the carbon into underground rock formations, and that's being claimed as emissions reductions too. So there's a huge amount uh, going on. Uh, they have different prices. The key, there is some, well, the key issue when you're looking into this, if I was to advise people, is additionality, right? Wind farms, uh, solar farms, they're, they're cost competitive. The technology has come down and improved so much that so they're actually competitive with coal-fired power stations and as batteries come up right now. So do they deserve to be able to issue a carbon credit? And is there real additionality if you pay, you buy that and you support them? Uh, less and less so. But uh, in terms of deforestation and Red Plus, where you are getting not only these additional benefits for marginalized communities, <laughs> conservation and wildlife, important ecosystem services such as watersheds and you know, keeping uh, pollinators healthy, um, but Forests, as I went back, as I explained originally, actually suffer the reverse problem. They don't have a value. So if you are going to do an offset, even though it's a little bit more expensive, perhaps, uh, you should probably choose a nature-based solution on a, on a Red Plus project because of the multiple impacts and the additionality it has. And so, and, and when it comes to average adult, what do they, how do they begin to calculate what their carbon footprint is for the year. Um, is that what you recommend that we think about this and, and and every year we sit down and we calculate it out and we we offset ourselves? Is that uh, an effective way of doing things? So how does the average person begin to start thinking about offset? So offsetting is, I think, one part of what people can do. And, 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 and everyone's different. Depends on how much time you have, you know, whether you're young and single, whether you're married with kids, you know, you're, everyone's going to have a different uh, bandwidth and, 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 and reality in terms of how they can engage on climate change. Um, 
I would say, you know, being knowledgeable, if you've got time to read up is important, you know, speaking in your community, voting, you know, that's the first thing as a citizen, because ultimately it's the government and industry that's going to have to change. Uh, And so uh, the next thing probably is to do what you can in your own life, right? Understand, like you say, measure your footprint, uh, which is pretty easy to do. We've got a very good calculator, which allows people to answer questions on different parts of their lifestyle. Quick, uh, it's localized to to your region of of the planet. And you can see where your impacts are. And then you can research, you know, what what things you want to do more of, um, whether it's your transport in your life, the diet in your life, um, the amount of... of, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the way you run your home uh, with renewable energy or not, or, or with double glazing, things like that. It, it's unique to each person. But yes, yeah, obviously measuring uh, and understanding your footprint in the different areas is the first part of that process if you really want to do it seriously. Uh, and on average, it probably costs someone in Britain uh, or America about $200 uh, or £15 pounds to um offset their their footprint um uh sorry 200 dollars or 150 pounds um to to offset their footprint annually so you may not be able to afford that you may want to as i say try and really reduce your emissions if you can people can't always but it's one of a number of options and you know you don't have to kind of feel that you have to do it all either even just contributing what you can you know doing 20 or 30 pounds in offsets makes a big difference and maybe trying to do what you can in other parts of your life. So it's down to the individual. I think taking any action is good. And going back to what you said just at the start of that answer of uh, the the importance of governments in this, and I guess it's quite an interesting time to say, okay, the Paris Agreement got got thrown under the bus by, by, by Donald Trump. And now we're likely to see that get reversed. What was what has been the actual everyday impact of that decision? And do you feel that the reversal is really important as a symbolic thing or as a practical thing as well? The Paris Agreement is very important, but it is only a framework. And ultimately, it's down to every country itself to move itself forward. And it does give some type of jointly equivalent rules for how that's reported uh, on climate finance, what rich countries need to provide to poorer countries. That's very important under the, the, the Paris Agreement. Uh, and, uh, and, and to encourage a kind of peer pressure of ambition on reducing your emissions. So, you know, because the U.S. is very important in international rule setting, uh, has a lot of experience on that, was an important contributor to climate finance, you know, being the largest economy in the world, uh, and also just to get it in that sort of collegiate ambition process, it's definitely good that America has rejoined the agreement, and, and hopefully that'll help the whole world move forward. But you know, ultimately, it is down to individual countries to, to to act. And in terms of those those actions as well, um, London has been a hub, really, of of the 
activists, extinction, uh, extinction rebellion. And what do, what are your thoughts on, on that kind of activism as a, as a valuable thing? It, it, you know, there's certainly areas of the press which aggressively attack uh, anyone doing something like this. Uh, how do you feel it, it takes forward the conversation? I am a little bit cynical. It's not because I don't appreciate those people and I don't understand where they're coming from. That actually is just a sign, a symptom of enormous frustration and urgency and fear, which which they're completely entitled to show. Uh, and, And under, sorry, you can completely understand how they show because there has been uh, not enough action on this incredibly serious issue for all of us uh, over the past 10, you know, 15 years when we should have been acting a lot quicker. Unfortunately, and as we said within Red Plus specifically, which we work on, all of these issues come down to the economy. And it isn't easy for anyone, uh, poor, rich, in-between country, uh, ambitious or not, to change our economies to be low carbon. Uh, And ultimately, the majority of people still have to pay their mortgage. They have to have a job. They have to have affordable food and transport. And, you know, it's not as easy as rubbing a lamp and hoping that all of these things are going to be able to still be affordable and the economy is going to work while changing the way that, you know, fossil fuels and carbon support the global economy. However, It is doable. Governments have been far too slow and they do need to be pushed. However, I do think that ultimately what is going to solve the issue are not these sort of signs of desperation expressed by Extinction Rebellion and the like, which are so understandable, uh, but people really getting into the nitty gritty of industrial regulation, of international climate finance agreements, and and the very complex work that, that, that... can be done, actually, you know, as complex as it is, it's not impossible to make that transition. And so and I think that that puts us nicely into this area which which Stanford Trees has, has really focused on. And I think, you know, we talk it's kind of come up throughout the conversation, you know, it's hard sometimes for if you've got a busy job, a family, for you to engage in this conversation to understand the complexities of it. Um, furthermore, there's an awful lot of opinions, different media sources, furthermore, different politicians even say different things. And if you're at risk of losing your job because of green technology, then it's not an exciting prospect to to think about the world transitioning forward. So a lot of what you've done is content and storytelling around that as that public face um, of the the Code Red. Uh, How have you gone about beginning to create the kind of content that makes uh, makes your work tangible and understandable, relatable, and and in the case of the, the Prince EA video, I guess, a viral as well in that respect? So that, that's a really interesting question. And I'll be completely honest, okay? Sometimes, as much as I just said, you have to understand the policy, Sometimes you also do have to just connect emotionally and at a general level. And, you know, that is not something myself as as someone from the private sector and sort of a a specialist in, in, in environmental regulations is good at. But 
a musician or an artist comes from a different perspective, you know, and there are different ways to communicate. And we have wanted to use those sort of very broad and powerful um, areas to communicate with people through music, through art, uh, because sometimes, you know, people don't have an hour to go through this conversation you and I are having, right? Mm. And in three minutes, they want to get the general point. They want to feel good about it. They want to be inspired. And, and, and a really good way to do that and where we've been very successful is to partner with incredible artists. We had a great partnership, as you mentioned, with the spoken word artist, Prince EA, did two incredible spoken word pieces, short videos, which have had over 200 million views on YouTube and Facebook. Um, and we just launched a new uh, short video, music video, uh, through a song, actually, with this incredible band from South America called Bombera Stereo and a very special Colombian singer called Nidia Gongora, um, which has had three million, over three and a half, I'd say we're over four million views now in under four weeks. Uh, and the, that actually leads on to a short film, a 30-minute documentary of an environmental journey and a musical journey. But um, that is very powerful, and that can at least bring people into the interest. If they want to learn more, that's fine, but at least that that can really engage people and, and you know, not to make it too negative as well. You know, what we're about is solutions, is about, you know, positive, what can be done, uh, and highlighting why it's so good to, to be involved in something like this. But when you when you begin the storytelling process uh, and creating content with with people like Prince A and and Bombora Stereo, like how is it that you convey them? How much do they take as the kind of creative uh, storytellers of your work, or do you get involved a lot in the production and the the storytelling? What's the process there of creating what you've what you've done? So we educate them. Uh, on the key scientific, social, uh, and business uh, practicalities of how the program works. And, you know, these are proven professionals in their fields. They are extremely uh, well appreciated because they are so good at artistically what they do. And, and, and I can, and you have to let them listen to what you've said sort of in a technical way. And then they, as part of their magic and part of their skill, turn it into a song, turn it into a piece of poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's down to them and their talent. And then you join forces to get it out there and, and do the publicity and the marketing. Exactly, when exactly. I see what you guys have done in those, in those, those two projects in particular, it blows my mind just how many different moving parts there are up to that point where it has 200 million views. It, it, it is, it is a lot of work that goes into that. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes one or two years work of bringing people to the projects also having the communities uh, themselves understand and approve the type of work that's going to happen, the type of artists who they're going to be working with. Uh, that's all part of the process. And, you know, there, there is, you know, many, many months and, and, you know, even as long as a year that can go into making a three minute video. It's incredible, but it is important. And these things last, you know, once they're there, they can be enjoyed for years and years to come. I mean, our Prince EA 
video came first one came out in 2015 i believe you know and here we are five years later we've you know we've recently had a specialist um video on demand network you know take that on as part of their content you know so it, it, it's definitely worth doing and and as you build it up it becomes a sort of um a sort of little little permanent display that the people and these things are quite timeless you know mm. songs uh, pieces of art you know they, they stay fresh I think every time I, I listen to the Prince EA, I, I hear something different. I love that about about rap and and spoken word. You know, there's there's always like a, a different uh, rhyme that I didn't notice first time, or something powerful about it that hits me in a different way. Because you know, music kind of uh, has this way of transitioning with you and meaning different things at different points in your life. I I, I wanted to just pick up like we probably could have picked up on it earlier, um, which is around the community you just said there. And I guess uh, earlier when I didn't really look at the perspectives of when you first start working with the community, how do you, and I know that this is the projects you support rather than stand for trees directly. How long does that process take in terms of uh, engaging with the community? How much do the community lead the conversation? Um, that always seems to be one of the, the biggest challenges in, in development is the engagement of sometimes fairly complex ideas into the community uh, and, and how much ownership they then get. Well, it's a very good question. And I, we did touch on it slightly, but a very high level, you know, especially when you're dealing with deforestation in these huge areas uh, where you're having to, to put these strategies in place, it's essential that you deal with the communities. And, and, and you know, you, it's, not, it's never just one community. These, these projects are so big, as I said, the minimum size that I've ever seen is 10,000 hectares and they go up to the whole nation scale. Uh, and probably our average project is 75,000 hectares in size. Uh, and you're, you know, you're dealing with multiple communities and they have to be part of the process. And, they, and there's a number of ways. So to answer your first question, I would say it takes one to two years before the project is even launched to go through that engagement process. And that is part of the rules. You have to. Part of Red Plus involves what's known as free prior and informed consent. So all the people living in the landscape have to have been consulted. They have to have been engaged in the process, explained why it's going to benefit them, what it means for them, what their benefits are going to be. And, and sometimes you can't, you know, say exactly what their benefits are going to be. But, you you know, you don't know how much money, you don't know how many offsets you're going to sell, you don't know how many government, you know, overseas development aid contracts you're going to secure, how many business partnerships, whatever it may be. So, or what the price of a, a ton of carbon is going to be in the market at any one point. But you have a general idea and you set up a framework and they get part of that process so that say if and when money comes in, these are the community councillors and the elected representatives who are going to decide how that money is going to be spent or there's going to be an annual review. And there's a process which is made clear to everyone. And that works in the reverse too, that if they're unhappy with anything, all of these projects have to put in what's known as a, a grievance and redress uh, mechanism so that if people feel they're not being heard or that things aren't working, there's a clear public process for that information to be put forward and to be adjudicated on. Um, it's never a perfect process, you know, like all our, our democracies, right? But you've got to just do the best you can 
and and you've got to, you got know, it takes time uh, and but it is integral to every process a project it takes time uh, and um, is key as we as we close out 2020 um, which is definitely a a year that will be memorable i i hate i i i i'm always remiss to say things like it's been a terrible year it hasn't it's been the year that it's been there there'll be a long tail impacts of of what's gone on um how has this year affected the projects themselves how's it affected your work i know that at the beginning of this when we saw planes uh standing still there was an excitement that potentially this could be a a, a leap forward for us in the, in in terms of the climate change conversation uh how do you feel about i guess the two sides of that one is the projects themselves and the other is uh the conversation around climate change and how this year has impacted that so starting with the communities themselves, it's it's been very difficult. Um, you know, these are places which don't have the most enormous medical infrastructure, although a lot of the uh, priorities of each project is actually to invest in a certain basic medical infrastructure, which, which is helping that um, issue. But, you know, they've had to close themselves off in some cases just to say, look, no outsiders. And that can mean no no verifications. That can mean no technical experts. A lot of these projects uh, actually are integrated with really good professional uh, consultants who are helping them to develop new agricultural systems, uh, new ecotourism programs, new sustainable uh, forest monitoring and patrol systems. So I know that a lot of some of the projects have just been closed to any outside visitors. So it's it's hindered them uh, in that way, no doubt. Um, and it's in terms of the demand, you know, people are flying less. Not that we, you know, we want to encourage that or, or be, you know, let me let me say, and the public, we who a lot of our support, you know, they've been challenged. That's you know perhaps been a little bit tougher for us, although we've been doing quite well and people have remained generous. And business interest has not fallen away, actually. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it, it was really growing before the pandemic. It's continuing. But um, so that's positive. And um, it hasn't really collapsed. uh, And and hopefully when the pandemic's over, we'll really start to to grow strong again. But to your your general point about what the pandemic at a sort of global scale has meant for the challenge on climate change, I mean, I'd say two things. Yes. It's it's created some emissions reductions, but you know I think that's that's a false way to look at things because you know we need a healthy economy. You know the fact that people stopped flying, there were less cars, there was less emissions is is really not the way to look at it. In that we what we have to say is actually we want a strong global economy, and we want people to have jobs and and have all sorts of opportunities and all sorts of new goods and products to be affordable. Uh, But we just want them to be done done green. And the only plus side in all of this has really been, it's quite a technical point, that the British government and a very important follow-up meeting to the Paris process, which will be the Glasgow meeting known as COP26 um, in, in UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, technical terms, was due to happen this year, and it was due to incorporate the, the, some of the rules that weren't followed up and finalized 
after the Paris Agreement implementation around markets and how carbon credits are going to play between different countries, projects like these. Uh, and and, and that, that, those negotiations have failed quite a few times. They're very complex and people have got different ideas. And the British government perhaps wasn't ready uh, uh, and, and has in some ways benefited from having an extra year to get ready for this really important international climate meeting that's going to happen in Glasgow to, to resolve this very issue. So that isn't really a positive to the pandemic. And, you know, I think it's silly to look at the fact that emissions have fallen, whatever, uh, in the big picture. But but it's brought us a little bit of time for this very important set of negotiations that the British government will oversee. And that's the, that's the only positive I can really draw from it. And I mean, looking forward to 2021, what are the main plans for Stanford Trees in that time? Um, what would you like? To, and, and I guess as well with that, that conference upcoming, what are the things that you would like to, to see? Are there any key things you're looking for to say that this is, this is a successful summit? From our side at Stanford Trees, we're going to be launching a new platform for businesses to offset their, uh, to first calculate their emissions and have a range of options as to, according to their budget, you know, how much they want to um, work with Stanford Trees to balance those emissions in the meantime. That's very exciting because it's quite difficult for businesses to do that. And if we can make it easy and get them a lot of information and options, it's going to be good for everyone. So that's very exciting. We're hoping that's going to come out January, uh, latest February. We did launch an affiliate program uh, last year, um, which was 1.0 and we're launching a 2.0 with a lot of new features where people can sort of download a type of app, put it in their website uh, and, and, and help, help us sell credits, but co-brand it, do it in their colors, their fonts, uh, or ours as they want, select the projects, things like that. That's also very exciting. We hope to do some more of these videos. Now we've got this really you know, clearly proven format of working with artists to visit the project. So hopefully we'll do another one of those. Um, and uh, yeah, and just to, you know, get get our names out there and, and be and offer ourselves as a solution for people looking to take action. Um, and I, I've spoken so much there, Nick. I forgot there was a second question. <laughs> Yeah, the second bit was uh, about looking forward to the the summit that you mentioned um, in Glasgow. What are the key things that you want to see in there that uh, would show that it's success and are things you're looking forward to seeing and hoping to see? So what's up for, for so it, it is trying to cement ambition always. These meetings are looking for new commitments from various countries to say we're going to, by 2030, reduce our emissions by 50% instead of 40%. So those type of things, they're already starting to happen. We've seen the British government, even the Chinese government, all sorts of governments start to, and but there are some laggards and I don't want to be nasty to Australia or, or, or Russia or some countries which, 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 are, which aren't maybe doing what we'd like to see. But, you know, it's a process and, you know, it's economics and we respect that and hopefully they'll get there when they're ready. But, you know, some of those more, more commitments and, and advances in commitments is always good. But to these sort of market negotiations, um, 
I dare not unpack that with you. It's so technically complex. But basically, we're looking to um, have an agreement that people can trade in, uh, in, in and pay. So, so effectively, someone like Japan, while, not, while also giving money, concessional overseas development aid, or uh, may be able to say to Brazil, look, we want to reduce our emissions by 50% by 2030, but we just can't do it. No matter how hard we go at it, practically, we're only going to get to 40%. For that extra 10% that we're committed to, we will give you $500 million and you stop deforestation or you invest in additional renewable energy and, and, and we will claim those credits and you will get that benefit, those payments. So, that is the type of thing. It also will help businesses and voluntary markets clarify how these credits are going to work between national accounts. If we can get all of those rules finalized, it would be huge. And are you confident? Well, it, the negotiations have failed <laughs> three or four times on trying already. Uh, but I think Britain is uh, one of the world leaders in in financial markets and market-based regulation. So I think, you know, the, having the British government as president of this set of negotiations is a very positive thing, uh, and that will hopefully help that process. And, you know, we've had this extra year, so I, I, people realize how serious it is, and businesses are very clear that they need this in place, and a number of governments want it resolved. So, Probably yes, it will be resolved, but it's mm. it, it's it's going to be tough. But hopefully, yes, it'll it'll get there. And so, uh, this is the final question that we've we've asked all of our guests, um, and it, it follows on a little bit from that one, I guess as well. But uh, what is it that makes you optimistic and hopeful? We've we've got a time where. Uh, more than ever, people are inundated with with negative news because it's so accessible to have all sorts of scary news or whatever. It's also really accessible to have empowering and exciting news as well. But what we want to just always think about is, you know, we're lucky and I'm lucky to have so many positive and energized and optimistic people in my life. And I guess this is my own personal question to everybody as uh, from a friendship perspective is, is what makes you optimistic uh, when you wake up in the morning? I'm naturally an optimistic person. So that helps. Um, but it is tough even for natural optimists to stay optimistic, but you know, I, I I work in this field day in, day out in quite detailed terms. So for me, what's giving me optimism is seeing some of the things that are starting to happen. There really are, finally, and it, and it, it is late in the day, but there are re- things that are really starting to happen, both governments really starting to engage on this. But in technology terms, I mean, the you know, the electric car market, batteries, um, this, the, the technologies around solar and wind uh, in, in the way software and satellites can, can help with deforestation and all sorts of, of, of things are happening. And, you know, and in the nuclear world, um, safer types of nuclear uh, and, and more effective. So I, my, my, what keeps me optimistic on, the, the, I, mean, I don't know if it's a general question or about, is it a general question or about climate change or both? I would love both. I would love both because if you're an optimistic person, then then your 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 daily morning optimism routine is is welcome here. 
Well, on climate change, just to finish on that, you know, I, as desperate as things are, I do think, you know, the hockey stick of, 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 of progress hopefully will happen. You know, we'll re, as things accelerate, they'll just accelerate more and more. And you kind of get to a positive tipping point where action just becomes more and more self-fulfilling. Um, uh, and then on a general note, I find that being grateful helps me stay positive. So if you really focus on, and, I, and, and working in my field, sorry to tie it back to, to that, but working with you know people who really suffer, people who don't have medical support, they don't even have you know often legal support, there aren't police, they're dealing with threats to their life, you know, especially living here in, in America or in Britain, you know, it's easy not to appreciate the roads and the government and all of these things, which often, you know, people want to fight against. But I think if you take a step back and you realize how good your life is in, in a developed country, that, you know, that certainly makes me feel better. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for um, coming on today. Thank you for the work you do um, with Sanford Trees and and elsewhere. And obviously, thank you for your support uh, of our project and and, and your friendship. Um, it's been a really uh, super interesting, actually. It's the first time since we met that we've had the chance to sort of uh, go a bit deeper with you and understand things. And I definitely, uh, yeah, definitely learned some new things today. I've been taking notes throughout um, that I want to look up. Um, so thank you so much for for that, Michael. Well, likewise, Nick, thank you for having me on today. Very, very interesting discussion and a great opportunity um, to, to continue our partnership with you. I'm very proud to be your partner. And we are inspired by what you do at Impact Marathon as well. <laughs> we will. We need to get some of you, uh, some of your team down running at some point, but uh, <laughs> who knows when that will be. Uh, <laughs> We'd love that. We'd love that. Hey, it's Nick here. Just a quick message before you go. If you have been inspired by today, if you've learned new things, then please leave a comment, leave a review, share it with your friends. It helps us to inspire and empower more people today. If you want to reach out, just message me on Instagram at NJKershaw. And until next time, go out there and be awesome.